0: We'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and record this program, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Turrbal and Jagera people. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and we extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. This is an ABC podcast. Charlie King is a Garigi man and an ABC broadcaster based in Darwin. Charlie's a well-known figure in the Northern Territory as the long-time presenter of ABC Grandstand. Before Charlie came to the ABC, he was a child protection worker. But his own family life was a very happy one, which he puts down to his dad, Jack, and particularly to his mum, Ruby. Together, Ruby and Jack raised 11 children in South Australia and in the Northern Territory, and they built a good life together. Charlie knew quite a lot about his dad's story in part because of his legendary exploits, which include riding a Morven Star bicycle right around Australia into Darwin, which is where he met his bride. But Charlie always knew that his mum, Ruby, had an entirely different story. It was only after she died that Charlie began a reckoning with what had really happened to her. And this is the story you'll hear today, the story of Ningadi, which was his mum's real name. Hello, Charlie. Welcome back. Oh, Richard, nice to be on the program. Thank you. What made you decide to dig into your mum's story? Well,
1: they both passed away in the 80s and I'd always revered my dad and thought what a great man he was and indeed he was. And you mentioned there, rode that push bike into Darwin from Melbourne, got halfway around Australia when... The man that was riding with him fell off the bike, and Dad didn't know he had a gun, and it went off and shot him in the leg. So oh he had to he had to he had to ride into town with a bullet in his leg from south of Catherine and then it got all gangrenous, and they put him on a boat and sent him back to back to Melbourne. And Dad was stuck here in Darwin, not to know that this would be the very place where he would meet
0: his future bride. My word, that's romantic, Charlie. <laughs> was it put that way to you as a kid? Was, was it told with kind of a romantic glow to it? Well, da- da- Dad always made it sound
1: pretty shiny and new and good every time he told us a story. So we were, we were pretty wrapped with it. We'd sit and listen to it a 100 times if we had to, and it never changed much. It was still the same story. Mum, of course, had a slightly different version of it, which we listened to as, as well. So it was always interesting to hear the the two uh, similar accounts if you like.
0: So in looking to your mum's life
1: where did you begin? Well she passed away and on the day that she passed away Richard was a day I'll never forget. I was actually heading to play football in Darwin, 982 and humid day and I'm driving down Bagot Road which is the main connector road between the northern suburbs and the city where Gardens Oval was and I was daydreaming for some reason halfway down Baggett Road I started to daydream that I was standing in front of a crowd in the United States telling a story about my mother what a story to tell and um, I got to the overpass which crosses over the Stewart, Stewart Highway and I come out of the uh, out of the dream after I just thought that I'd said but she's passed away now and I come out of this dream and I thought where am I going? Am I going left, which would take me out to Mum's place, which is on the outskirts of Darwin, or am I going right to go to the football? So I knew where I was going. I was going right, so I turned and I went to the football and I was playing and then just halfway through the second quarter, a family member was standing on the fence waving to me in the same way that Mum used to wave, with her fingers pointing downwards and flicking it back towards herself, which meant come, come quick. So I ran over and I said, what's the matter? And she said, it's mum, dad can't wake her up. Did she disappear from your life then or is she still present in some way? Oh, no, she didn't. She, she was larger from that day onwards because I made a commitment. Then we had a big family gathered and, of course, her passing was unexpected and we all got together and I made a commitment. I said, what I'll do is I'll see this funeral through. I'll be strong for the family and for her and so I remember that night driving out to the house where she was living and sitting on the bonnet of my car and looking at it and saying, Mum, I'll be strong. I'll be strong. And so that's uh, that really connected me to her. And all of a sudden, all these thoughts would come back to me over the years that followed. And some of them were just, you know, asked, uh, asked more questions and gave answers and left me just a little bit bewildered, but I, I worked my way through them, and I was able to to just about work it all out. I
0: think in the end, it takes a while for all those thoughts and feelings to settle, doesn't it?
1: Indeed, yes. They because some of them are some of them are disturbing, to say the least, and and some of them are good things as well. You know, so you got this mixed emotion going on. You're feeling wonderfully overjoyed and happy, and at the same time, you're feeling miserable and sad, and it's like a difficult thing to difficult thing to do. And I. I, she came back to me many, many times um, and a really important time, I must tell you, which I will later on in this story. But, yes, it was, it, was, it was a telling time for us and I just tried to be strong. But, of course, as everybody knows, who loses someone close to them that um, you've got to grieve. And if you don't grieve, it can, you know, it'll cost you in the, in the long run until you actually have to, to deal with it. Had you ever visited her country with her? Not with her, no, and I and I regret that, Richard, to this day, because now it is so close because it's easy to get there and the roads are good and, I mean, you can catch a plane there or you can get a ride on a bus that goes there. But back in those days, she died in 1982. but so, you know, in those years between 1966 and 82, when we were all together in Darwin, we didn't go there. We never, we never went to Limbunya Station or the land of the Grinchy people to... To see, we'd listen to the stories, but I can't tell you why now we didn't say, let's just go and do it. I, I don't know why we didn't why we didn't do that, because what a revelation that would have been to take her back to her country, to that special place that she remembered so fondly and we recall so fondly. Where is
0: Limbunya Station, where she grew up?
1: Well, you drive to Catherine and then you turn right and head towards Western Australia until... Uh, you turn left and you head down towards Top Springs, and then you get to Kalkarinji, and then you go 100 kilometres towards the Western Australian border. So it's right in the middle of Australia almost, and there's a, a Limbunya station, there's a fairly big cattle station, and w- within Limbunya station, there's this rock hole, uh, which was a permanent water supply, which is where the Garinji. Not, not all of the Gringy people, but some of the Gringy people actually sat down and lived there for many years before the white man came. When you say many years, I suspect that's
0: an understatement,
1: Charlie. Yeah, maybe sixty thousand years or something like that. That was that was their home. And why would they move, Richard? I mean it was a permanent water supply, you know, like they, they'd go hunting and wander off and do whatever they needed to do and they'd shift, but they'd always stay within walking distance of the of the waterhole, and it became a sacred place for them, and it's still there, and it, it looks no different now to what it would have looked like when they sat down all those years ago.
0: Tell me about your mum's mum, a woman who was known as Tom, Charlie.
1: Yeah, I, I, I asked mum about her. I said, "But tell us about your mother, and she said, well, they used to call her Tom. Now, mum, in respect of, in an Aboriginal culture, doesn't, wouldn't say her name not that we knew it at the time that that's what she was doing. She said they just called her Tom because she worked like a man. And the reason she worked like a man is because the white man came there and set up a station around the, the Rock Hole and the Aboriginal tribe moved away a little bit but still stayed close enough to the Rock Hole and many of them worked there. But her mum was a tribal, gringy woman, you know, who had two older brothers for mum and then Mum was born, and Mum had a sister that was born some years later. But her two older brothers, Kiwar, uh, was one, and Frog was the other one. And again, I don't know why Mum would never give us his name. She would just say his name was Frog. So they were the two her two big brothers. Who was the man who became her father? Who came into the area? Well, William Johns was a policeman. He was a patrolman that lived in Darwin. He came here in I think 1905, and and stayed for quite a number of years. He and his brother, um, Jack Johns, they were two patrolmen, and they travelled around the Northern Territory chasing down Aboriginal people who broke the law and had to be brought to town and face the courts, and they travelled all over the Territory. So William Johns would have finished up at the Permanent Waterhole like most people would have, and there he would have met my grandmother, and he stayed there for a while, and then he moved on and then he went across to another community called Nukur, which is about 800 kilometres east of where Limbanya is, and um, he spent a bit of time there as well. And he left a trail of children behind, which was very interesting. What do you know about his career? Well, he was a heavyweight boxer. He was a heavyweight boxing champion of, of the police in Australia, and he was a very good boxer. He was a big man. He was about, in the old language, six foot four and strong and and stately you know and he'd ride sit straight on the horse when he was riding it and he must have been an imposing figure to see him riding towards you in the in the bush where hardly anyone is to see this man coming towards you sitting on this horse big and tall and I never met him but I've uh, spoke to his his other grandchild he told me quite a little bit about him but he was a he was a strong man he was recognized for you know his services to the police force and he became the commissioner of police in South Australia that's where he and his brother came from to the northern territory back in the early 1900s but he went back there and became the commissioner of uh, commissioner of police and was given a award for services to the police and to uh, to the country did he have any kind of
0: relationship with your grandmother tom look
1: look i, I, I don't think so i mean i can't imagine richard that the, the, a policeman would turn up on a horse, tall, stately man on a beautiful horse and and all of a sudden there'd be romance between him and this little Gurindji woman who lived, you know, not even at the station but off in the bush some distance from the station. So I can't imagine there was any romance or anything but I, what I do know is that somehow uh, my mother was born to him, he was the father for her. And then three years later, her sister was born to the same man. So over a period of three years, he fathered my mum, Ningari, and my auntie Maggie, who was three years younger. And he also, in that period, uh, fathered another child from over in Nukor, who in, I suppose, in white man's way is mum's half-sister, but to mum she couldn't be because she was an Alawa woman and mum was a
0: Gurindji woman and they couldn't be sisters, even though they had the same white father. So your mum was born, how old was she when she was taken from the Gringy lands, Charlie? Uh, Eight years of age she was and uh, she was uh, the the oldest
1: child taken from the ones that were taken and more than, I think more than 200 mixed race children who were usually, uh, you know, fathered by white station owners or people who work on stations or policemen and whoever else. Um, and they were all brought together and brought to a Kylan compound. But she remembers that day. What did she say happened so on clearly. that day? What did she say? Well, she said because because of the permanent water hole there and the fact that the station was built there, they were growing vegetables and fruit trees and whatever. And one of her jobs was to water the fruit trees and that. So she'd go down with the bucket and get the water out of the, you know, out of the rock hole and take it and water all the plants. And she loved loved doing that. But one day out of the Out of the east came three horses, two men on three horses. One was a policeman, uh, one was a native affairs worker and one was a pack horse. And they were travelling around the Northern Territory locating children who were fathered by white men and uh, working out ways in which they could bring them to Darwin. And Darwin by then hadn't quite worked out where they were going to put them but they did have a compound here where by law visiting Aboriginal people had to be Um, moved away from the town area. They couldn't just hang around the town areas. They'd come to the bright lights, as people do, but they would be moved and put in this new fenced-off area called the compound, and so a lot of Aboriginal people were already in there, but it wasn't a home for these, and I'll use the term that they used in in those days, these half-caste children they, they never had a place for them and they had to find a place for them and that's the place they found. So, Charlie, when she was taken that day, did she understand what was happening to her? No, she didn't. No, she said she didn't speak English very well. She only spoke the Gurindji language and she loved horses and she would have loved the horses they had because they were better than whatever horses they had on the station because they were well looked after these horses and were well muscled and front legs well spaced out she used to say you know which was a sign of a, a good horse and she thought that they were taking her for a ride her and her sister so she went willingly along for this what she thought was a ride so there was her her sister Auntie Maggie and a cousin of theirs was another young woman who we all knew later on as Auntie Daisy Auntie Daisy Ruddock and the three of them were taken on these two horses and away from the rock hole and Mum said she kept looking back and she could see her mother standing there and she could see Kiwa standing with her mum and had his hand on her shoulder, and she would she didn't know what was going on, and then she started to realize that they that they're taking us somewhere because she realized they also had some provisions loaded up on the horses as well, so she started to get nervous and tried to get off the horse and they they wouldn't let her get off they tied her back on there and kept her tied on there and that must have been a, just the most horrible experience you could ever imagine. To be tied on a horse, and they're just taking you, and your mother and your brothers looking on back in the back in
0: the far distance. All the way, all the way to Darwin. That's a huge distance too. Well, they took they
1: took it to the to the Victoria River, and there there was a police boat there that took them down the river out into the open sea. And Mum was absolutely terrified of the sea, according to Auntie Daisy Ruddick who was about five years of age, she remembers it as well, and told us after Mum passed away that Mum was terrified of the water and the waves and they actually had to hold her down on the boat. I think it's about a six-hour trip to get them into Darwin. And, and what they didn't realise, Richard, as they motored into Darwin and swung around, uh, you know, into the where the, where the town was built, um, that there was on the top of a cliff was the Carlin compound. The children didn't know it then, um, but... Later on, they were to find out that that's, that's where they were and they were going to be staying there, not for a good time, but for a long time and a pretty ordinary existence and, existence. and I've often gone there, Richard, and stood on the edge of that cliff and looked out over the sea and imagined to myself what they must have been thinking as they were motorising into town. They would never seen a town before in their life. They wouldn't have
0: even known what was what was going on. So. Never seen the open sea, never seen the town before, never seen any anything like that before. You said that they were rounding up specifically so-called half-caste children. What was the thinking? What was the program as you understand it at the time? Well,
1: I think what they were planning to do was tr- try to give them a better life than what they had living with these out, you know, with as they called them primitives at that time. But they, that's how they lived and they you know, when we look back over it, we think how heartless that must have been. But you know, those things happen today as well, which we may talk about a little later on. But there was some thought that the the, the women, of the the mothers of these children, were giving them to the you know police to take away. But in my research, I came across a, a, an ordinance, a law that was in place then. It was it was titled Number Sixteen of 911 relating to Aboriginals, Part 4, and in Part 4 it states, in part, any person shall deliver the Aboriginal or half-caste or take reasonable steps to facilitate the delivery of into the custody of the Chief Protector or Authorised Police Officer and if he fails to do so shall be guilty of an offence against the Act. So very clearly there was...
0: An an ordinance that was written that gave the police the power to take these children away. This is the great crimes of the 20th century, in particular the crimes committed by people thinking they know what's good for you better than you know what's better for you. People playing dolls with other human beings.
1: Mm. In fact, that's the the similar words to what Mum used when she used to tell. We'd say, "Well, why? Why did they do it?" And she'd say, and she'd try to brush it over. I think you know this maternal instinct to protect your children from pain is to say you know they did what they only thought was best you know so she'd always say that and we'd be satisfied with it until many years later when I looked more closely at it and
0: realized that she was covering that up to make it sound better than it was. So having been taken to the Carling compound which was pretty much right it's pretty much close to the very center of Darwin isn't it what were conditions there like Charlie? Well, pretty terrible, terrible from what
1: we hear. I mean, there was insufficient food and poor sanitation, harsh p- punishment and likely all forms of abuse occurring there. So the intention of providing more for these children than could be provided in their undeveloped community was never really realised, you know. They went from, from bad to bad, really, And but even worse when they'd lost all contact with their language, their culture, their family and everything that they that they grew up being part of and expected to be part of. Are there any pictures from that time? Have you seen any images of the compound and the kids? There are. There are. There's some photos of them. And I, and I did a talk a couple of weeks ago at the Heritage Festival in Darwin and I had a, an a 4 size photograph of the children in school looking at the camera and I had another photo of children in the concentration camp in Austria looking at the photo. And one thing oh. that leaps out at you none of them are smiling there's not a smile and you look into the eyes of them and you're thinking they are bewildered you know like they're just thinking well, what what is going on what's going to happen here who, who who are these people what's do you know just total trauma just deep trauma in their faces and people look at it and i said these are carlin compound kids and then someone said to me well how come one lot have got barbed wire and i said that's because they're in the concentration camp they said oh my goodness so it can be quite shocking to look at the two photos side by side and realise the trauma these young children must have been going through. I, I, I don't even like to delve too long on the thoughts of what they must have went through. And, you know, Mum, she didn't really talk much about what happened inside that compound apart from the little bits that I've just shared with you then and the other little bits I've heard from other people who'd got it from there parent who was in there who said you know the local people used to come down to the fence and bring some bread down and pass it through the wire netting to the kids and you know because they were they were hungry and they just they looked exactly like kids in uh, in, a, in an austrian co- compound in an austrian concentration camp brother when you tell people about that today do they have trouble believing that the such things happened in australia I think I think more now they're believing it than they did before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they would have fallen for the oh, we did it in the best interest of the children, which unfortunately is the line that's used in the new in the you know the child removal um, act, welfare act that says the action you take should always be in the best interest of the children. Well, the best interest of the children can mean anything really. I mean, it, ripping them from their parents—that's the first thing. If, if you're doing that, then that's That's hardly in the best interest of the children, but I know when I worked in child protection, uh, some of the people that I work with, that would be their first thing. That's their primary intervention would be to remove the child from where the disadvantage was or the, the unhappiness or violence or whatever was going on, remove the child immediately. And that's what caused the ongoing of this stolen generation, which is a big group of people now, but the residents from the compound, I think there were 200 children, roughly 200 children who would have been rounded up in that big roundup at that time. Probably their numbers now would be, you know, these these are the relatives of the residents, would be somewhere around 2,000 who would all uh, s- still feel the pain. I mean, I feel it for my mum and Richard, I must tell you, my daughter, uh, she feels it as well. She finds it difficult to talk about it. But um, it was, it, it, it wasn't the right thing to do, but they, I guess they, they did it for whatever reason they satisfied
0: themselves with. So once she'd grown up, she would have been released at 18, and that's when she met your dad soon after that. Once they got married, was that a happy new phase of her life?
1: Oh yes, that's, that's where the real happiness came and how she met him was quite extraordinary because as I would said he was the bike rider and he got stuck here and couldn't go on any further and tried to get someone to go with him and he couldn't so he got some work and he was fair skinned, he was, had an Irish background, had sort of reddish coloured hair and he got, he got bad um, sunburn when he was there and he, <laughs> he was actually taken to hospital and he was in a coma for a while. Meanwhile, my mother had actually just turned 18 and was coming out of the Carlin compound and they gave her a job as a domestic at the hospital. And so she was working at a, as a domestic, cleaning the, cleaning the rooms and doing the jobs that a domestic could do. But one day, um, the lady who was responsible for the room where my dad was didn't come in. And so my mum was sent to that room to do it. And so she was cleaning the room when my dad came out of a coma and his story was he looked up and he saw <laughs> Mum standing at the head of the bed and he said, I thought to myself, oh, my God, I've died and gone to heaven and all the angels are Aboriginal. <laughs>
0: mum had a different story, of course. Oh, that's lovely. But given that he was a white man and she was an Aboriginal woman, did that mean they needed permission
1: to get married? Yeah, that's right. There was protector of Aborigines at that time and so you had to, you had to almost fill in a you know, it's like a job application, you know, to be the to be the husband of one of these these kids. And so you'd have to write all these things down about yourself. And I don't know how they checked it out, but Dad wrote what he had to do. And I should say at this point, you know, Dad came from a well-to-do family. I mean, they come from Corowa in New South Wales on the border. They own the hotel and they were, you know, pretty good. But when he wrote to them and said... You know, I'm going to get married, and I'm going to marry an Aboriginal woman. They said, "Well, don't come back here." And he never forgave them. He never forgave them for that. Even later in his life, when he got the message to say that one of his parents—I can't, I can't—I don't know which one it was, whether it was his dad or his mum—but was, you know, in in the last days of the life, um, he refused to go. And they said, "Come home. All is forgiven." But he wouldn't go. He wouldn't go. He stood strong with mum, and we feel proud of him for the things that he did like that.
0: It 's all very well, I suppose to have this vision of your mum at the end of his hospital bed, but were they were they soul mates were they were they really um, birds of a feather, those two?
1: Well, you know they had quite a bit in common that was unknown at the time because Dad had actually prior to getting sunstruck, was actually driving these old road trains, old leylands through the central Australian bush, taking out um, supplies and equipment to the Vesty station and he'd actually visited Limbunya and he'd visited Wave Hill station where the Gringy men were. And so he knew all of those people. He, he was, he was well known there and it was a, quite an amazing reunion when they eventually come home. It was a surprise for mum to see that her mother knew dad. Mum, mum was just astounded. She really? could not believe that he, she would, in this vast country of ours, that this woman would know this man who were both connected to this lady, my mum.
0: You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. So you were saying before that once your mum and dad had met and your dad had been driving road trains through the Territory, that meant that when your mum brought your dad home to Lumbanya Station, he he was known to the family. Given, Given that he'd been forced to give up his family after he'd married an Aboriginal woman, did they sort of become a new family for him then, your mum's lot? I, well i think so i mean i think
1: that's we 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 didn't talk that much about that but i think they did because they he did i mean they stayed there for quite some time that limbanya station on the edge of the the rock hole and i think they spent a couple of years there and then and then stayed in that that area that region where they went they found an, an old salt lake and they set up a little camp there and they mined salt for a couple of years in a place where my sister and brother were born so they they stayed around that area so they would have had quite a bit of contact but it's such a vast country that you know to move around it is risky and it's dangerous because there's not a lot of water around and there's no roads and there are no tracks and things and so they you might have been close but you could have been a world away really mum would go to Wyndham which was the nearest town back on the western Australian coast to have the cho- have her children. So my brothers and sisters, were two of them were born at Wyndham Hospital. So they'd, they'd move around. Dad had an old truck that he'd used to move the salt. When he, when he sort of gathered it all up and put it in bags, he'd then take it round to the stations and sell it to them and they'd, of course, be keen to get hold of it. So he had quite a lucrative little business going there, although it must have been pretty rough to live because when they arrived there, there was nothing, just the lake the dry lake and so he had, you know, had to build the house and so he did, did all of that. And I, I just remember a story he told me that the truck that he had, the children got in it and left the lights on and when he got up in the morning the battery was flat and you couldn't push it, it was a big truck. So he, so he tried to work out a way in which to charge the battery and he looked around and he said what was available and the only thing he found that he thought could make it work was mum's sewing machine. So he connected the sewing machine up to it and pedalled it. Got a couple of other people and they'd pedal for an hour and they'd pedal for an
0: hour until they got enough juice in the battery to start the motor. I must, I must remember that. I must remember to take a sewing machine if ever the next time child, be, be prepared for about six hours of pedalling, I think. <laughs> so, having introduced your dad, your mum having introduced him to the family around Limbunya Station, did she also want to track down her father, William? Johns, the the former police mm. heavyweight champion, did they did they want to meet him as well?
1: Yeah, well, Dad's um, Dad always said that, uh, that he he was saying, you know, you have got to at least meet your father. But when we sit down and think about it now, we think that Mum would have planted that seed for him. You know, would have had some suggestions around that. And, and so here they are sitting in the middle of the Northern Territory and the driest continent in the world and they've got to get back to Catherine so they've got to go buy horses again back to Catherine then they catch the train and they take the train down to Alice Springs and then they get the train further from Alice Springs to Adelaide so it's like a whole new world opening up for mum she'd seen Darwin obviously but now Adelaide, this big city and that's where he lived and dad went around and found out where he lived and then one day got in a taxi and said to mum let's go and meet him Had he risen in the world since your mum had been Yeah, oh yeah, he'd been the Commissioner of Police then and was, I think, just on the verge of retiring. And so they went and found where he lived and mum went to the door, knocked on the door and in dad's memory, the maid arrived at the door mum wasn't so sure about that. But a person came to the door and opened it and mum said she wanted to meet Mr Johns and so the lady went in and then came out and said, OK, and mum went in and there she met him. And they talked for maybe 10 minutes and then he gave her 20 pounds, two 10-pound notes and showed her out in the back door and then she went and got back in the taxi and then went back to a normal life. But I said, Mum, what, what did it mean to meet him? And she said, I just looked him in the eyes. I wanted to look into his eyes and just see what, what sort of person he was. But she never told me what,
0: what she decided after the gazing into his eyes. Two things in what you just said. The first one is that her being shown the back door. Was there part of her that believed she was a second-class citizen in any way and being treated that way?
1: Well, I I think so at that time. You know, when these children were taken away and taken to the compound, they weren't allowed to speak their Gurindji language, you know. They weren't allowed to mix with other Gurindji kids. They separated them. Um, And then they told them they were half-castes, which anything that's got half written in it that refers to your ethnic origin automatically must make you think, well, what's the other bit? What are we talking about here? So racism was rife then. You know, that's getting close to my era and I certainly felt the sting of it when I was a, a little boy for quite some time. But uh, she would have known and would have, think, she would have thought nothing of being shown out the back door. In fact, she was probably reluctant to go to the, the front door. I mean, you see that the old movies show you that's how it was and you think, oh, that's a bit stretching the imagination a bit, but it wasn't that's how that's how things were that's our country that's our history, and we should never try to deny that we should always say this is our history and if we don't you know if we want to learn from our history we've got to know our history in all its in all its honesty in all its warts and all you know it's just what it
0: what it is and what makes us what we are today is that a conversation that most Aboriginal people know when they're kids that particularly of your generation when they're when they're growing up there comes a day when Mum or Dad is going to say to you, tell you you're Aboriginal, and and that's not going to be easy for you in the, the broader community. Does that conversation yeah. happen?
1: Yeah, I'm sure it does. I mean, even now that that would happen, you know, like you 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 don't know that you you don't know that you're any different. You with your family and everybody's together, and there's fun times and sad times, of course, and whatever. But you do everything together, and then all of a sudden you you start school, and then you realise you're you're a different colour, and then the other kids know already, and you know, they, the race the racial jibes start coming and I remember, you know, with the little kids that I was going to school with used to go walking and they'd sing this little ditty, you know, when you step on a crack you marry a black, which I didn't know what it meant. And I, you know, gaily be singing it along and I go home and mum said, what, what, what were you singing? I said, I was singing, when you step on a crack you marry a black. She said, I don't think that's a good thing to say. And so I didn't say it anymore. But I didn't quite know what it was. But I
0: realised much later in life that, of course, that was an insulting thing to be singing. Is it hard to reconcile that with the family environment you grow up in? When you grow up as this kind of this beautiful child, this this adored creature, this this fabulous, wonderful sort of gift from from wherever, uh, to reconcile that that kind of intense love and affection that you get at home with that that kind of casual casual cruelty
1: yeah it's it's hot and cold isn't it it's mm. it's 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 warm at home where you want to be and that's why removing aboriginal children from their families is should be the last ever resort it doesn't matter that there's violence anger or whatever else is going on there keep keep aboriginal children with their families or with their in a kinship placement and there's many op- opportunities to do that but do you know uh, richard when i had two older brothers and they grew up to be like dad and dad took them out bush when they were about 14 or 15 years of age, took them out of school and they went working out on the bush and dad was erecting windmills across central Australia and doing all this sort of work and so these two big brothers of mine would go and do that and they were operating plant, you know, bulldozers and graders and all those sorts of things and doing a really good job of it. But when I was born and I was born in Alice Springs, mum looked at dad and said, this one's mine. (laughs) which which makes
0: me feel pretty special. Uh, oh, you were to, that guy, were you? You were your mum's boy, were you? Uh,
1: well, I was a bit. As my family <laughs> often tell me, I was I was sheltered from a, a lot of things, but I felt pretty special and I was brought up amongst a lot of love and and care and and and, and planning, you know. Mum mum would have been doing lots of planning at that time thinking I I, I need someone in our family to be to do more for aboriginal people you know i don't want to have 11 children but because i've got eight sisters and two brothers and my eight sisters all married not aboriginal men but Mum would have thought well you know someone's i'd like someone to do this and so she she engineered it she she never discourage me from doing things that she didn't think I should do like you know wanting to be Ringo and play the drums in a band or to work in the brickyard stacking bricks and making bricks and working in a timber yard she wouldn't discourage it but she never encouraged it but I know one day when I'd been offered this job to work in a thing called the Aboriginal Community Worker Program which was dealing with Aboriginal communities she was excited she said that sounds like a good job what's it entail and would go and visit mainly on the weekends and she'd want to know more about it. And so it gave me encouragement to pursue that line of work, which I did do. And I worked for a lot of years with Aboriginal people and still do, you know. And um, she she, was, she would have been proud, I'm
0: sure, if she could have, you know, seen the end result of what she wanted to happen. You said earlier that it was your dad that said, hey, why don't we go and visit your f- your mum's dad in Adelaide, the the commissioner of police, as he turned out to be. But do you think it was really mum who sowed the seed of that idea? Was your mum like that? Was she able to sort of just gently shift the furniture, if you like, of, of, of reality? Was she able to sort of gently nudge things in a certain direction in a very subtle way? Oh, Richard, absolutely. She was the master of it. She's very good. And when I think back now
1: over all the little things that she was doing along the way, it was a plan she had. She definitely had the plan. And you know what? They always say, you know, the steel fist in the velvet glove. That's mum. That's how she was. She was hard and she knew exactly what she wanted and she'd make it happen by just carefully manipulating, not in a, not in a bad way, just to give it a nudge this way and a nudge like not discourage but encourage, you know, that sort of thing would, would make the difference. She had a plan and she wanted that to happen and that's what drives me on now when I'm working with Aboriginal people I think I'm doing mum's work.
0: So you became a foreman in the timber yard, then did that work with that Aboriginal institution, then became a child protection officer and got a job with the ABC, became a broadcaster and extremely well-known territory identity too. When did you decide decide after your mum passed away that it was time for you to go out to Limbunya Station, where your mum was from? Yeah, we did that about 10, 12 years ago now. We
1: we thought, you know, they have the, the, the walk-off festival every year in August, you know, and we said we'll go there one year. My sister went before me, a couple of years before me, and she took along some photos and she showed it to people and they remembered her and so she came back and told us, you know, they remember Mum there, you know, so, and so that gave us some encouragement to go and I took a, a group of family along with me, not... As this, the little film that was made said, he took his entire family. It wasn't quite correct. I took a very small portion of family, about six, six of them, with us, and we went to Kalcaringi for the festival, and then we drove the extra hundred kilometres away from Kalkarinji out to the west to where Limbanya Station is. We saw the station owner and asked, "Could we have a look around?" Told him who we were, and of course they knew the whole story with the Gringi people, and they knew that there'd be you know, relatives who'd want to come and have a look around. So they told us which way we could go to have a look and we drove through the bush and we didn't see the rock hole first. That's what we were looking for but we didn't see it but you just don't see it until you walk to the edge of it and so we drove, drove along and then all of a sudden my brother said, I think that's it there and we stopped and we walked over towards it and then we saw that it was the rock hole, we then walked away from it because Mum had told us many times when we were young, if you go to the rock hole, that's what she called it, throw a rock in and warn the spirits that you were there because you don't want to just turn up because they won't know who you are. So throw a rock. So I got the whole family together, we all got rocks and we threw it in and we walked over to the rock hole and it was such a glorious sight, like I guess the equivalent is an oasis in the middle of the desert there's a rock hole in the middle of the desert, just sits there full of water. And, uh, you know, there's an entry at the bottom where the cattle come in to, to drink, but um, it's just stunning. And it's really deep at the other, the other end and you can sit and dangle your feet over and you can't get anywhere near the water. It's about 20 metres down to where the water level is. And I remember my daughter looking, my young daughter looking at it and saying, it's hard to imagine that this was mum's playground, grandma's playground. And it was, it would have been.
0: When you talk about throwing stones into that waterhole, it reminds me a little bit of Jewish people saying prayers at the Wailing Wall, something that's Mm. been done for 5,000 years or thereabouts. But in the case of your family and your ancestors, that's something that would have been happening for anything up to 60,000 years, maybe, people have been doing that too announce your presence to the spirits there by throwing a little rock in. Was your heart Your heart must have been pounding while you were
1: doing that. Yeah, indeed it was. It was. I just, I, I almost wanted to run to the waterhole, you know, and I wanted to get in the waterhole and immerse myself in the water and, you know, say we're here. But, um, you know, we didn't. We sat on the edge and, but it was a glorious feeling. It really was. And then we found the spot, the exact spot, because she told me where the building was and there was concrete there now, still from that building on the on the ground, and next to it was an old rusty fence. And she said when she looked back, her mum and her brother Kewell were standing near the fence. So we figured that's where she was taken from, that spot there. And we stood there and remembered.
0: Charlie, you live in Darwin now, and when you're in Darwin, the main colour you get is that kind of electric tropical green that's everywhere. You've got to wear sunglasses to cope with it. The green's so intense and saturated. In that part of the world, I'm guessing it's that deep red. It's red, 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 isn't it? It
1: is. It's red, it's red, and it's got, you know, ochre and orange colours mixed with it, and and it changes colour when the sun sets. It's quite extraordinary what happens, and people see it at... Uluru, you know, when you see the rock change colour as the sun sets, it's a, it's a spectacular sight, and oh, it was just amazing to be there. And lots of, you know, those trees that, you know, they they don't grow big; they're just skinny little sapling type things. That, and and the countryside looks dry and deserty, but it's a, it's just a beautiful memory I have of it. And We took photos of it, of course, and a lady actually painted. A painting off a photo we showed her and did a great job so we like that what did your, your your kids and your daughter think of being there yeah they liked it they were talking you know about you know uh, that very point about you know you you've got to know your history you got to know who you are and where you're from you know if you want to if you want to know things about life that that's a good starting point to know all of that and to go there and stand there and stand in those footsteps where where you know mum would have walked and, and Grandma Tom would have walked, and it was just um, just an amazing experience. Was it satisfying for you to see your daughter standing there and seeing that? I never felt so wholesome in whole in my life as I did after that. It just like there was this emptiness in me that needed to be filled, and Mum had said to me, "When you go there, if you want to feel good, take your shoes off and just stand barefoot in the in the ground and rub your feet into the dirt and let it soak into you." and I did that and what a glorious feeling it was, Richard, I must tell you. I just stood there and my feet were buried a bit in the dirt and, and over my left shoulder
0: is the rock hole and I thought, wow, this is... I'm complete. Tell me what happened once you left there and you went south, down past Alice...
1: Oh, yes, we, were, we, we went into the APY lands just recently and on the way back we called into Apatula, which is known as Fink, where the Fink Desert Race turns to come back. And we met a group of people and we were talking to them about a whole range of things and this young man said to us, you, you know me, I, 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 you, I know you, I saw you on TV. You know, we was having this conversation and he, he said, you know, I was on TV too. We said, oh, yeah, what for? I found that little girl. And so our ears pricked up, What well, what little girl? And he said, you know, that little girl that was missing. So, said, which one? He said, you know, at Easter she was missing that time. Four-year-old girl, she was a little bit deaf and she was missing. He said, well, I, w- I was looking for her and I, I went to sleep one night and a voice came to me and told me exactly where she was. And he said, and I got up in the morning and I went to the police who were searching for her and said, I know where she is. I want to go and look. And they said, well, you know, it could be a crime scene, we're not letting people go in, everyone's got to stand back and wait and leave it to us and we'll find it. But a more senior police officer came along and said, let him go, let him go. And Richard, he went straight to where she was. She was <laughs> sitting on this little hill with a puppy dog, on a rock, underneath a tree, and she'd been out for a couple of days in the boiling hot sun and the freezing night, and he w- he went there and found her. And he was pretty pleased with himself. And it was a great story for us to just to feel how good it was and another community we went we met a guy by the name of uh, vincent namajira who's the grandson of albert namajira and he lives a, a little community in the apy lands and he painted that painting that won the big prize of adam goods and him the archibald and yeah yes he won he so he lives there and my daughter just couldn't believe that she was talking to him and he was just a, an ordinary person living out in a community and miles and miles from anywhere so some fabulous people live when you go out bush and you meet them and sit down and talk to them about their lives it's they have a whole wonderful existence when you're back in big city darwin does it seem like a dream yeah it does i sit down and i think i tell that story and i think to myself I hope that really happened, you know, like, of course it did, but it's such
0: an amazing thing yeah. that that happened. You said when you were born your mum said, this one's mine, about mm. you to your dad. How much of your mum is in you?
1: Oh, look, a lot, I think, Richard, a lot. She's she's in me, she's on me, I can feel her around me. I never, I never lose sight of her, I can feel her. I remember, you know, on the Tuesday before that, Saturday when she passed away, I visited her and she had promised to tell me her story and I wanted to hear that story. I wanted to hear what happened in the compound. I'm not sure she was going to tell me that story, but she said to me as I left, she said, when do you want me to tell that story? And I said, well, I'll come out on Sunday. And she said, OK. And I reached over and I gave her a kiss. And I can still feel it, you know, that really soft skin. And and then she passed away that that Saturday. And I missed out. But I think it's probably best not to know some of those things that happened. I think I'm satisfied with what we all know already and I can share those stories with people. She'd be proud if she was listening to the ABC and listening to this broadcast. She'd be pretty, pretty pleased and pretty proud, I think. Does she come to you in your dreams? She did. She did after, after she passed away, I think, and this is, a, this is what happened, for three years after... Um, I used to get pains in my left arm, which she told me she was having, I didn't realise that that was a sign of a heart attack, but I started to get those pains, and I remember being on an aircraft once, and a pain started shooting up and down my arm, and I just said to them, I've got to get off, I have to get off this plane, and they said, you're going to hold everyone up, and I said, I'm sorry, but I have to get off, and I got off, and I went home, and um, of course, I, you know, it wasn't, wasn't as bad as what I thought it was, but it, it was just a, it was just reliving what had happened to her, and I'd I'd been suffering anxiety for a number of years. I'd sometimes start to drive to work and get halfway down the road and turn around and go back to my sister's place and just stay there for a while until I felt better. And but then one night I was asleep and I had this dream that I was walking along this road and in the distance I could see a lady sitting in a chair on the side of the this bush track. And I walked up and it was my mum. And she reached out and she said, it's all okay, it's okay.
0: Was that just what you needed to hear then?
1: Yeah, yeah. I cried and woke up and the, the, the weight had been lifted. That was, you know, not grieving. I'd grieved grieve through those three years after. But um, once I heard her voice in my dream, then... And she said, "It's all, it's all alright. It, it is okay." And I thought, oh, "That's great. Thank you."
0: One of the things you might hear in this story is that a terrible wound was inflicted when your mother was taken. A wound that was only exacerbated by her childhood in that compound. But it was a wound that was very gradually healed and repaired over a very long time by your mum and you and and, and, and others as well. There's still a scar, but nonetheless, there's been that incredible effort to repair that wound inflicted upon her. Is that how you see it or do you see it differently, Charlie?
1: No, no, I see it exactly like that. You talk to people who've been to the Great Wars, you know, and came back. They can't talk to you about what happened they can't, they can only talk to people who were there with them and this is that same sort of thing, the trauma is so deep she couldn't talk about it, she, I don't think when she said she wanted to tell me her story I don't think she wanted to tell me what had happened inside the compound which makes me really suspicious and concerned about it all but not knowing it is is probably okay, you know it's, it's To know what I know is is enough, and if I can share my story with people and say, you know, the trauma is deep. It's not, it just doesn't go away. I mean, I guess I'm known as an easygoing person, fairly strong in some respects, and it crushed me, you know. It took a long time to get past it. And even now, you know, still, And I, when I revisit it, I become deeply emotional. And you can't see me, but I've got tears running down.
0: I remember interviewing a guest once. He told me how his dad died when he was when he was uh, thirteen or fourteen, and he said people keep telling him he should get over it. He says, "But I don't see why he should ever get over anything." Yeah, because it's there. It's it's real. It's not it's not
1: pretend. It's it's not false or anything. It's it's what makes us human beings, and we we feel deeply about people who we love and care. You know that have cared for us, and may that forever be as it is. And if we suffer and feel some pain because of our loss that there's a positivity in that you know it, it shows the depth of the of the feeling and that can make you when i finish this interview
0: i'll feel 10 foot tall and i'll feel good and strong charlie thank you very much for sharing the story of your mum the story of Ningari. thank you so much thanks richard you've been listening to a podcast of conversations with richard feidler For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.